The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, and and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. Well, good morning. Good morning. There is a little more. Uh, My name is Ben. I'm on staff here at Restoration. We're glad and honored by your presence this morning. Um, A few things I want to note before we dive in. we uh, have fun things going on, as you saw at the beginning of the service, VBS. Somebody uh, said they drove in and thought it was Coachella in here. They could just hear the music out there. Um, so that's always fun. We had a fly fishing trip yesterday. Uh, this uh, Friday night, there's a full moon flotilla, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, we're going to float down the Tennessee River, all some, some guys, uh, uh, under the full moon. So uh, if you can, you can sign up in the app. It's a lot of fun, and we'd love to have you if that is something that uh, you're excited about. And come find me afterwards for details if you have questions. Um, so uh, as we look this morning at the book of Proverbs, we're studying Proverbs this summer, and it's um, kind of all one-off sermons. It's not a narrative and not all connected, but it's all in the same book. And it, what it shows us is how to live life well, how we are supposed to do life well. And so um, with this kind of uh, text in mind, I invite you to close your eyes and uh, whittle your stick of imagination. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think uh, about the greatest meal you've ever had. The greatest meal you've had. It could be a birthday meal. It could be a family meal. It could be Thanksgiving, Christmas. Uh, It could be a special meal to honor someone. It could be a special meal to honor you. So think about that meal. Think about the table you're at. The physical uh, wood or, or metal table. Uh, think about the food that was served and you ate, the, the drink that you drank. 
Think about the person you're left and your right, across the table from you. Uh, think about the people that made that meal. Think about also uh, the intangible things, the comfortability and contentment of that place. That you were safe there. That you were dining and eating and feasting and safe. You can open your eyes now. What this text shows us is that Christianity is no less than that. That the God of Christianity comes to us and gives us a feast because he has us in mind. And so as we talk about a text this morning about feasting and about a feast maybe of wisdom and a feast of folly, as we talk about those things, I invite you to think of the things in your life uh, that are screaming at you. Uh, Maybe a helpful way to ask it is, what is the dashboard light, like in your car, what dashboard check engine light is flashing and saying something to you? Something's not right. Something needs to be checked. Something needs to be worked on. It could be that you're angry, you're, you're bored, you're mad, you're apathetic, you're so anxious. Whatever that is, bring it close to you and, and see how this text has something for you with that in mind. And so uh, we're going to look at three things this morning. First is uh, two invitations that call us. Uh, the second thing we'll look at is wisdom's knowledge of us. And third, we'll look at a feast that changes us. So with that in mind, would you join me as we pray as we study God's word this morning. Let's pray. King of heaven and earth, we come to you because we are a people with particular stories. And Lord, we come to you as a people who long to be changed in particular ways. We've tried to fix ourselves. We tried to make sense of our lives. We tried to know who we are and who you are and how life is and how to live. And, and we're just tired. Maybe not in every facet, but at least in some. Lord, this morning, would you and your Holy Spirit do a work that disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed because you are a God who is near us and knows us. And so with that in mind, Lord, we ask you to be with us this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, So first, there are two invitations that call to us. This is a text uh, about um, wisdom and a Proverbs. And, and the writer of Proverbs is the, one of the wisest people to ever live. And he writes to the next generation after him. And he's saying, you need to live life well. Here's what I've learned living life well. He gives them ways so that uh, they can do things well. And, and he kind of articulates it in different ways in different chapters. And here he says, as you're going along life, you will be struck with the choice to feast at two different competing polar opposite tables, a feast of wisdom and a feast of folly. And so let's look and see uh, quickly what these feasts are like and what these feasts say to us as they invite us to feast with them. Wisdom and folly. Wisdom, doing life well, uh, um, really living the way we should and we're wired to, and folly, the way things trip us up, the things that we run back to, the things that... Um, we keep erring in. So we see an invitation to, uh, to wisdom's feast in verses 1 to 6, and we'll kind of just hit these highlights of what it looks like. Wisdom is personified. 
and wisdom invites us to a feast. And it says this in verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Now we think of uh, architecture, and we drive by homes, and we see pillars, and it's normal in our day. In that day, uh, seven pillars that are hewn and built are like, it's like the built war on steroids. Uh, that, that wisdom has built this house and crafted it and constructed it for you to come into. Not just for wisdom's sake. It's not a status symbol. It's for you. Not for wisdom. For you. Wisdom builds with you in mind. A house that is large and regal. Uh, verse 2, it says, She has slaughtered her beasts. Uh, she has mixed her wine. Wisdom rolls up the sleeves cooks a dinner, slaughters the beasts, mixes the wine, doesn't spare a penny on a meal prepared for you. Not for wisdom, not for, not for herself, but for you. Wisdom builds, wisdom cooks. If you think of, um, I've never done this because I'm not that uh, culinary um, uh, sophisticated, but um, there, things are called garnish. It's uh, things that you don't eat, but you put in your food to not eat. And so uh, if you make a pizza, like a DiGiorno, and you pop it in the oven and you take it out, you don't put garnish on that, right? You don't garnish it to make accentuated and show its beauty and regal and majesty. You just eat it. Here, uh, it, we see wisdom laboring over a meal, making it perfect, garnishing it, adjusting the garnish. Throw a little Instagram picture on there. Um, no. No. Uh, Wisdom makes it a perfect meal because the guest of honor is coming, and you are that guest. Builds a house for you, cooks for you, uh, makes a feast for you, sets a table for you, in verse 2 it says. In verse 3, she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. All of it's good, place, food, table, but it's not good enough because you aren't there. Wisdom wants you to be there. Because wisdom has labored for you, with you in mind. In verse 4, whoever is simple, let him turn in, wisdom says. Now, wisdom and folly both say that exact line. Whoever is simple, let him turn in. Wisdom and folly, competing voices, say the same thing right there. So what makes them distinct? And it's what's said after that. Verse 5, come eat my bread and drink the wine I have mixed. Wisdom says, you are worth cooking for. Come. You're worth it. You're worth laboring for and building for and cooking for uh, and inviting and sending people out for. You're worth it. And in verse 6, it says, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the ways of insight. To value this feast more than anything else. That's what wisdom says to us. Wisdom Feast says you are worth building for, laboring for, cooking for, uh, sending people out for. You are not going to get shortchanged in the way wisdom is lavish toward you and inviting you to a feast it prepares for you. You're the apple of wisdom's eye. That's wisdom. Uh, so that's good. Wisdom's good. What about folly? There's two invitations, competing voices wisdom. And what's folly? Folly makes a feast for you too. And folly invites you to the feast. And here's what folly says in 13 through 18. It says, the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. Seductive and hollow and loud. 
Again, the, the pronouns here and, and the personification of wisdom as uh, a woman is not to show that wisdom is loud and seductive and, and all these things. It's, it's not that at all, because wisdom, uh, excuse me, folly is those things. Wisdom is a lady too, so is folly. So it's totally just the audience of the day. And, and the person of Hebrews is right, or sorry, I said that last time. The person of Proverbs is writing and saying that woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. And oftentimes our sin and our folly is not a quiet voice that we just immediately just quench and stop. It's actually a loud voice that's aimed for you and me with a bullseye on us, coming straight for you that we can't ignore it. It says in 14 that she sits at the door of her house and she uh, takes a seat on the highest place of town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. She's preying on people. Folly is preying on people. Make no mistake that folly is hunting me and hunting you. Folly wants you to come in and she's preying and just picking people off. Whoever is simple, let him turn in. The same thing wisdom says, but what's different? What makes folly distinct? It says this, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Folly doesn't cook for you. Folly doesn't prepare for you. Folly thinks you are just good enough to steal for. Just kind of like uh, put a worm on the hook just to throw out there. Not a lavish meal, but just to entrap you. Just to lure you in. Just to get at you. Uh, folly always steals good things from wisdom and distorts it. Folly is a hijacking um, force. Sin is a hijacking force that gets to us because it has hijacked a beautiful thing from wisdom. And it says at the very end, the result of it all. Uh, but he does not know that the dead are there at, at Folly's feast, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The result is death and decay. So what do we see from Folly's feast? You're not worth building for, working for, cooking for, laboring for, sending for. Actually, you're not good at all. I'm going to lure you in and take everything from you. Death and decay. I'm going to lure you in by validating a desire that I've hijacked from wisdom. Those are the two feasts, wisdom and folly. When I was in high school, there was more girls than guys in our grade. And so um, what that meant was that in, uh, for senior year prom, there are more girls than guys, so not every girl had a date. And so, uh, as you know, senior prom uh, is a big deal and a big event, and um, there you, you have your dates and you're kind of the debutante presentation of this person walking this person out, and, and they're being presented. And so there's some girls that don't have dates, and so some of my friends uh, decided that we would take a second date and invite girls who, and go with girls who uh, had, didn't have a date and be presented. And so after I walked my date out, I came back and was uh, standing there waiting, about to be kind of walking in line, waiting for the presentation to happen. And I see uh, this girl who, who I'm going with also, and she looks beautiful. And you can tell um, she's just ravishing. And um, she's not one that has gotten a lot of invitations to stuff like this. And I hear her breathe in, and I look over, and I clo she closes her eyes, and she exhales. And as she exhales, she says, this feels so good. 
It feels so good to be recognized. It feels so good to be uh, shown honor. It feels so good to be validated and shown as uh, worthy and really sought after. It feels so good. It feels so good to be thought so highly of. That's a desire in us, and it's a beautiful desire in us. To be so highly thought of, honored, desired, loved, sought after. And it's also the gateway to our soul. Folly only takes the good things of wisdom, hijacks it, and distorts it. So as we looked at folly and wisdom, you know, it's kind of clear which one we should choose. So why don't we choose wisdom every time? It cooks for us, it loves us, it comes for us. Folly just tries to entangle. Why don't we choose this eight days out of the week? And it's because we answer a question however we like, and we choose folly after we answer that question. And the question that, that makes us choose between folly and wisdom is this. Where do I get the most validation to my desires where do I, um, where does, which feast plays by my rules and validates what I want out of my desires? Where do I get to go and feel like this feels so good? Which place is that? Wisdom or folly? And we can see this in ways that it trickles down and has kind of ripple effects in our lives. The ways that we're friends. In our friendships that we may feel uh, slighted or hurt in, uh, are we shunning or sacrificial? with our hurt by our mothers and fathers and siblings and friends and even uh, churches, what do we do with that pain? What does folly or wisdom tell us to do with that? With the, the hard-earned dollars that we have made, do we become generous or do we hoard? With, with the, the fantasies that you and I are kings and queen of, what do we do with that? Are we self-fulfilling or, or sacrificially oriented? With the authority that we want validated in our lives as kings and queens in our worlds, are we uh, fragilely reactive when they begin to shake? Or are we humbly forbearing? Wisdom and folly, two invitations, both aimed at us looking uh, to get us to feast at their table. And we will always choose a voice that is sweeter and a voice that answers the question, where do I get my desire validated? And so often it's folly. So often it's folly because it bends and caters to what we want. The exact same attributes that a boa constrictor does. We choose folly so often. So it's kind of a, a weak question, uh, elementary question to ask, where do you choose folly instead of wisdom? Instead, I want to ask the question of where in your life do you see folly present or sin present or distortions present? that attest to a beautiful thing that wisdom offers. Something that maybe uh, Satan has gotten um, and shown you and lured you in, but it's simply a distortion to something God offers us so beautifully. Where in your life do you see that? As we're invited to two feasts. So uh, if we're invited to two feasts, how do we choose wisdom? What's significant about that? Why do we go this way and not that way? How do we live well? How do we choose uh, Christ over our sin? Over the ways we keep running back to. And it's the second idea that, that wisdom has a knowledge of us. Wisdom knows us. Wisdom knows us. 
There's a story in Luke 15, and it's a, it's a famous story and well noted, but it's called the parable of the prodigal son. And the parable of the prodigal son, I'll, I'll run through it quickly, but um, it's a story about a father who has this big um, estate. He's rich, and he has two sons. And um, the youngest son says, Dad, I want my inheritance now, a.k.a. I wish you were dead more than alive. I just want your stuff. I don't want anything with you. I just want you have to offer me. So the father says, yes, gives him everything. Uh, and the son goes off and squanders everything away. He's eventually feeding pigs. And all of a sudden, as he's feeding pigs and squandered his father's wealth and left his home, he thinks to himself, there are people that work for my father that, that are fed so well. If I go back and beg for a job, maybe I can um, feed my father's pigs. And so the son goes back and is beginning to walk back. It said he comes to his senses. And in Luke 15, it says this. Uh, but while he was a long way off going home, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, grab the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring, a, kill, uh, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Why do we choose to stay and go to the Feast of Wisdom. It's because Jesus knows all about you. Everything. All of it. You right now. Your story. Everything about it. The things that you know. The things that other people know. The things that you can't even understand and articulate and put your finger on. Jesus knows all of that and he still makes a feast for you. Uh, the, this father... Um, was betrayed by his son. And yet, as this, as this uh, son comes back to him, this betrayed father runs to the son, kills the calf, celebrates, makes a feast. Does it sound a lot like the Feast of Wisdom? That God knows everything about you and still says, I want to make a feast for you. I know everything. I know, I know the country club you, the surface you, the small talk you, that everyone else knows, but, but I know the desire you. I know the shame that, that riddles you and, and guilt. I know the things that make you anxious and steal sleep and joy. The things about your life, Jesus knows all of it and still says, I'm here for you. He knows us and he loves us. Uh, Tim Keller articulated this well when he said, uh, to be loved, but not known, is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of self-righteousness, and fortifies us uh, for any difficulty life can throw at it. The person of wisdom, Christ, knows everything about you, even the betrayals that may have happened, the things where you've chosen folly over him, and he doesn't keep record of it so that when you come back to slam you, when you come back, he comes and he moves towards you 
And he says, let me kill the fattened calf for you. Let me put sandals on your feet, the rings on your finger. You are worth doing all of that for. You're known and you're loved. Folly knows you, but actually hates you. Why? Because no one would ever kill someone they love. Folly hates you, therefore they want to kill you. It's hard to be known without ever having a conversation. And so when you talk to others and you make yourself known and, and they move towards you, aren't those relationships the most safe, filling, comforting things ever? Worth its salt. And maybe I want to ask you the question this morning, where in your life do you feel like you need to lay the you, you, all of you, before Jesus and say, this is who I am, and I really, really want a part of that feast? Because it sounds a lot more beautiful than the things and the wreckage of my life. It's a feast made for you. He moves towards you. Honest prayers create intimate relationships. And that's something Christ would love of you and myself this day. I say that as a terrible prayer. So wisdom knows us. It moves towards us, right? Uh, Even after we've chosen folly over wisdom, like in the parable of the prodigal son, it runs towards to meet us. It kills the fattened calf, puts a robe on us. So why do we choose folly ever again? If you're a lot like me, I feel like my life is, I'm here at, at wisdom's table, and then I run back to the feast of folly. And then all of a sudden, I, maybe after a while, I'll run back to wisdom, and it's just this ping pong match, back and forth. And I can't sit still at the feast that Christ has put before me, and made for me, and given me. So what makes us stay? And that's our last point, our last idea this morning, that it, there's a feast that changes us. Actually, we're changed by the feast that Christ creates and offers us. And we see that in verses 7 to 12. That we see that there's a, there's a, a posture and, and a product of staying at the table, of going to the feast that wisdom offers, that Christ offers us, and sitting there. We see the posture of feasting is this, in verses 7 to 9. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instructions to a wise man, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. What's it saying? When we feast at wisdom's table, all of a sudden, We are not the greatest person in the room, which means we can be changed by the people around us. In fact, God uses people around us to speak into our lives. That true wisdom looks like this. I know I'm not wise, but but, but I need you to show me places that I'm blind to in my life. One of my friends, uh, Aaron Tolson, said this. He said, "Uh, when I was young, I felt like I knew the most when I really knew the least. And as I get older, I realize more and more how little I understand, though I am growing in wisdom. When we begin to let people in and become wiser because we recognize we don't know everything, we begin to grow and grow and grow. And also, we're not undone. 
that our fragile um, uh, own self-constructed egos that are hollow, they won't uh, crumble. We become more wise and more beautiful when we're around people because we know we need them and they need us. I need you and you need me. That's the posture of it, that we can take critique and we can give critique. So, quick, quick crash course. How do we um, give critique? You're thinking, hey, critique, we can do that. We're allowed to do that at Wisdom's Feast. We're supposed to give critique to others and, 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 and talk to others about their lives. Great. I've got a list, and I'm so glad I'm allowed to do this. Ready, aim, fire. Um, quick note. How do we give critique to others? It's never escalating or dehumanizing, insulting, or reactive. It's none of those things. Uh, critique also uh, is not a license for open season. It's not a chance for you to say, I am the expert in another person's life, and God has put me in their life to slam them and show them what they can't see. It's, that's not it. Critique that this proverb is talking about is this. It's gentle, and it's always meant to heal and dignify. Something that open-handedly is offered to the other person as you're in relationship with them and saying, I'm seeing this in your life, or it feels like this based off of what I'm experiencing with you. Open-handed, gentle, dignifying, healing always. So if that's, if that's how we give critique, how do we take critique? Jack Miller once said this, that if there's somebody who uh, critiques you, uh, always say, thank you so much. You don't know the half of it. Because there's always a kernel of truth in whatever falsity may be spoken. And that actually humility is on display when we realize, actually, you're not even scratching the surface. I'm way more worse off than you're even talking about. Christians should be the least offendable people in the world because we feast at a table that says everything about us and provides everything for us which makes us so able to receive words from others, especially words that heal and dignify from a people who are so close to us and will never say something and leave, but will stick by us and walk the road together. Oftentimes we think that when we become more vulnerable um, and uh, we, we open ourselves up to others and, and maybe they speak into our lives that, Shame will, in, and will follow. Shame will ensue because they know who I really am and therefore they're going to just totally lay it on me. Bring the hammer down. The paradox of wise living with other people is that it puts shame to bed. That people get to enter into your story and say shame is not the most important thing about you. Your guilt is not the most important thing about you. And guess what? I'm here to prove it and I'm not leaving. And we're walking the same direction together. And I'm here. How does this flush itself out and show itself? One pastor noted this. Membership in houses of worship has dropped 50% in the first time since Gallup began tracking in 1930. Inviting people to commit to a local relationship in a local place for local mission with local leadership as a member of a local church is a vital and countercultural act. Vital and countercultural act. Belonging creates intimacy, creates connection and commitment and the ability to grow. 
where it says the whole wisdom thing where I can actually take a word from someone and become more wise because I don't really know much. It makes that and puts legs on it, puts flesh on it. Will church fix everything in your life? No, no. Uh, Will church membership uh, be the silver bullet? Absolutely not. What this is saying and what I'm saying, what I'll offer you today is that you change and I change when we're around messy people, broken people, feasting on Christ together. Where do we see that? In a room like this, in a community like this, where we get to say to each other, my life is so messed up and it's so broken and I'm tired of it. Can you help me? And they say, yeah, I'm with you to the end. That's the posture of feasting at a table that changes us. But what's the product of it? And we'll end with this. How do we really change? If we're all together at the table, um, humble, talking to one another, taking critique, giving critique, how do we really stay? Uh, Verse 10 and 11 say this, For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and your years be added to your life. What's the product of feasting at wisdom's table together? It's this, more and more and more life. Days are multiplied, you have insight, and you fear the Lord. You don't tremble in your boots, you don't, um, um, you know, you aren't terrified of God. It's that you recognize him as the one who is the most wise person, and you're the one who runs back to folly, and I'm the one who runs back to folly. And he's the one that comes and moves towards us and says, I'm making a feast for you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because we begin to realize how ultimate and beautiful, sacrificial, and uh, how God moves towards us. A God who says this, I'm moving towards you, and I'm going to show you how I do it. I'm going to send you my son. I'm going to send him to you. You don't have to come to me anymore. I'm going I'm to send my son to you, and he's going to sacrifice and die, and all for you that we feast at Christ's table together as mess-ups and screw-ups, all not eyes on the worst things about us or our liabilities, but eyes on the one who prepares a feast for us. That Christ is the one who did this. His first miracle, a wedding in Cana. He loves to allow his people to gather together and have a great time, to feast together. Uh, His favorite crowd, the Pharisees said it often about Jesus. That guy dines with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus loves messy people. Uh, That that his final meal was this, uh, feasting and providing a meal for his closest friends who were about to betray him. And then his final moment was this, walking into the feast of folly on the cross, dying for us because he knows we have, we, we do, and we will choose folly over him again. And he moves towards us, and he says, I'm here for you. Come and enter my feast. And actually, I'm moving towards you because I know you. Everything about you, you, you now, me. He knows us, and he moves towards us. The things we understand, the things we can't even put a finger on. Christ, it's not too much for me. It's not too much for my table. Come and feast with me. Let's pray.
Lord, we're told of um, nebulous words um, that we can't really understand all the time. That you are a God who feasts. And Lord, you are a God who moves towards us. And so this very day, would you make that present? This very minute, would you make it present in this very place? Would we feel the king of heaven and earth move towards us, slaughter the fattened calf, put rings on our fingers, robes on our shoulders, sandals on our feet, dignify and heal us, wipe the tears from our eyes. We long to dine at that table. So Lord, would you wake us up, give us sense, show us mercy as we move from the table in the feast of folly. We come to you as a God who is merciful. We pray in your name, Christ. Amen. So, Lord, would you wake us up, give us sense, show us mercy as we move from the table in the feast of folly. We come to you as a God who is merciful. We pray in your name, Christ. Amen.